Hello and welcome back to the Ideas Matter podcast, where we take the important issues of our time and explore the intellectual trends that shape how we think of them today. I'm Felice Basball with the Ideas Matter charity. In this episode, we're bringing you the debate, The Dangers of Progress. This is the fourth episode in our Living Freedom series, recorded at the Living Freedom Summer School 2023. Historically, the quest for freedom was bound up with the ideal of progress, new technologies and ideas opening up opportunities and pushing society forwards. But today, many are less certain of the benefits of progress. Key features of modernity, such as urbanization, mobility, secularism, and affluence, are often deemed counterproductive to liberty. Many worry that centuries of modernization have sidelined traditional values of family, religion, service, and honor to leave us slaves to consumerism captured by individualistic and materialistic desires. So how should we define progress, and how do we account for the rising lack of faith in its benefits? Are progress and tradition necessarily in direct and bloody competition, or is there a case for a creative tension worth celebrating for social benefits? From industry to the internet, cars to contraceptive pills, has progress gone too far and become a threat to contemporary freedoms? To discuss these issues, we had Nina Power, a writer, philosopher, and senior editor of Compact Magazine, and Ralph Scholhammer, a political theorist at Webster Vienna Private University. I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm going to try and sort of take up what we might call a post-liberal position and I'll explain what I mean by that if only partly so we can have a proper disagreement and and discussion debate so I might push on some areas for reasons of of provocation why not which I think is an essential feature of dialogue and debate especially in a world in which people have become often very afraid to say even what they actually think so on the question of progress I wanted to begin with a quote from Ulrich Beck who you've probably come across he's the author of a famous book called The Risk Society from 1992, which is a sort of delightful read in, it, in its kind of boringness, and I mean that in the nicest possible way. But he has a very interesting comment on industrial society, and obviously we had the mention of Ted Kaczynski. I, I see Ted Kaczynski, obviously his methods were um, hugely deplorable, but his work is, is very much along the lines of a kind of Frankfurt School critique of technology, a kind of horror at modernity and at one point he says you know we have to rip the the plaster off right we can't do this slowly Ulrich Beck I think has a, a clever way of trying to understand what happens in modernity he's talking about what he describes as an inescapable structural condition of advanced industrialization he says modern society has become a risk society in the sense that it is increasingly occupied with debating preventing and managing risks that it itself has produced. Okay, so this is, you know, easy to understand in a certain way, but actually very, very profound. It it relates also to what Marx was diagnosing in the middle of the 19th century in terms of the inevitable consequences and costs, if you like, in part of what it meant to industrialise. On the one hand, you have the dissolution of old social bonds, the destruction of religion, a certain kind of emancipation, a certain image of the individual, and I'll come back to the individual in a bit, and on the other, you have the, the loss of those things. You know? And I think that the important thing to bear in mind whenever we're talking about progress in terms of costs and benefits, we always have to bear in mind both constantly. Like Whatever gain we think we're getting, it will also come at a price. 
whether it's something to do with development in medicine, whether it's something to do with the development in technology or energy and so on. And I think sometimes there's a kind of fantasy, an ideological fantasy, that we can have all of the advantages of technology with no implications and no costs, as if we can live in a pure, smooth space of freedom from suffering. And this isn't true, and I want to say that suffering is a necessary feature of human existence. It's, it's what religion has always understood, and the destruction of religion has also come at the cost of an understanding of suffering. And I'm not talking about unnecessary suffering. We want to mi uh, mitigate <laughs> unnecessary suffering. We don't want to increase suffering, but we, we do, I think, want to acknowledge that suffering will never leave us. It is part of the structure and meaning of what it means to be human that we will suffer things like grief, for example. I'm very, very opposed to the idea, for example, that we should automatically medicalise forms of human suffering that are natural and, and normal. Okay, and one of the wars that industrial society has waged is, of course, on the very idea of what, it, what nature is, including our human nature. So whenever we're thinking about the history of revolutions, and the French Revolution was mentioned in the kind of abstract for this discussion, we have a kind of speeding up on one level of certain tendencies, right? So the Enlightenment, ideas of kind of reason, of progress, of, of eradicating superstition, of fraternity, egalité, liberté, all speeded up massively in the French Revolution. We live in the aftermath of that revolution. At the time, you have figures like Edmund Burke, well, Edmund Burke in particular, who is often described as the father of conservatism. And he writes a book in 1790, you can see what's happening in France, and he is very anxious that the revolution doesn't spread. Revolutions have a tendency to spread. And they, are, they do an awful lot of damage, potentially. Right? We, might be, we might be all for the ideas of the revolution. For example, someone like Immanuel Kant, who we don't necessarily regard as a revolutionary, was nevertheless, if you like, enthusiastic about the outcome of the French Revolution, if not the method and the means by which they got there. Edmund Burke proposes that conservatism as a practice is something like a slowing down of progress. And he suggests that basically whenever there is a proposal to make a change or a shift in political life, in social life, that these questions should be raised and debated and discussed and very, very slowly come to terms with. Whenever groups of people or individuals try to force change very, very, very quickly, there is often usually a backlash. In the case of the French Revolution, we saw, as Edmund Burke predicted, that it descended into the terror, which is basically like a kind of purity spiral where the revolutionaries start attacking other revolutionaries for not being pure enough, and they all end up on the guillotine, right? So this is, <laughs> this is one of the risks of a very, very, very quick social change. And I think we can see that this kind of political tendency, this urgency, has not disappeared in the modern world. We have lots of political groups. For example, there's a, a battle going on at the moment, which I find quite amusing, between Pride and Just Stop Oil, the environmental movement. So Just Stop Oil have said to Pride, they've kind of issued a series of demands around their use of energy uh, and Pride. And, and so, but you can see <laughs> that the kind of pure revolutionaries in the sense that they're more committed to their project to the extent that they're proposing like a rift and a potential war between another progressive movement, i.e. Pride. Pride is, of course, extremely corporate. It's going to be very difficult for them to disavow their dependency on oil and energy companies because they're all supported by, by banks and so on. Anyway, the point about this example 
is to highlight that even in an apparently secular, rational age, that these kind of very extreme forms of revolutionary terror, quote-unquote, don't leave us. In fact, they remain. Which rather presents us with the idea that one thing we need to understand and not get away from is human nature at a deep kind of anthropological level. I've, I've stressed already the ineradicability of suffering, and I think we need to think about this also in terms of medicine. You know, we also live in a world in which people are prescribed antidepressants in their millions. Mary Harrington, who's a very interesting contemporary thinker, someone I'm friends with, defines herself as a reactionary feminist. Seeming contradiction in terms, but her entire project, which I recommend, is about precisely confronting something that's supposed to be progressive, i.e. feminist, feminism, um, alongside a critique of progress. And she suggests that the pill, the contraceptive pill, which she opposes, is actually the first transhumanist technology, as she calls it, because it is precisely a form of hormonal control and a form of medication that doesn't depend upon the body being unhealthy. On the contrary, it is a drug taken by women who are otherwise healthy. And when we start to think about the body in terms of taking drugs or having surgeries that are, strictly speaking, unnecessary from the health point of view, then we're in an entire new world of thinking beyond the human. Okay? And we also live in that world, as we know. And it's very obvious, I think, that many people would like there to be serious constraints on the development of some of these technologies. Um, because we, we are bringing new horrors <laughs> down the pipeline, um, and I think we have enough of those already to deal with. So there is a kind of uh, a stress here on a kind of uh, slowing down and a conservatism. Of course, that then leaves you open to charges of being a reactionary. Nobody wants to be on the side of the past. And I wonder if part of a, a project, a political project, is to do with bringing together people from what I would call the old left, which I would regard myself as being a member of, and people on the conservative right, whether religious or otherwise, together. And this is what I want to say about post-liberalism. Post-liberalism is an increasing, I would say, term that's used for a diagnosis of the current situation that we find ourselves in, vis-a-vis liberalism as a hundreds and, you know, 300-year-old political project, uh, an economic project, a social project, and a political project. What does liberalism champion? Liberalism champions free markets. It champions the individual. We're asking, in every case, the individual to reinvent the moral wheel. We basically destroyed various structures of religious and community understanding. We've destroyed various forms of morality. We're asking every individual to come up with their own moral system. That's quite a burden. <laughs> um, I think this is also why we see the recreation of various religious forms in the form of identity politics, tribal belonging, a desperate need to be part of a community. And as annoying as identity politics is, and especially because institutions have been completely captured by this bullshit, at the same time, I think a sympathetic understanding would see it as a form of a, almost like a religious need to belong, to have a, a name, a meaning, an identity, and so on in the wake of the erosion and destruction of existing, pre-existing moral forms, I happen to think that Christianity had a better model of the human being insofar as it understood that we are all equal before God and that we are all broken. I think what we see at the moment with the supposed woke politics is a, a Christian heresy, <laughs> which is a kind of Manichaeanism, which sees the world in terms of good and bad, which is very dangerous and very simplistic because it creates a world of friends and enemies, and if you're a bad person, 
and I, I would know, having been cancelled many, many times, um, it does mean that people feel almost obliged to attack you, you know, to call you names and to physically assault you and so on. So, you know, this is not a Christian model, right? It, it's a model that doesn't really promote forgiveness, for example. It creates a kind of fanaticism. Uh, and again, these are deep human tendencies that, that it's very, very hard to get rid of. And I think a better understanding would be to embrace and understand those tendencies. We're still the same kind of people that we always have been. Human beings are not going to change that much. And this is one very serious reason, I think, why we should be very cautious whenever somebody presents something as being progressive or progress, whether it's a medical development, whether it's some sort of, I don't know, new idea about how we should be governed, whether we should be using various technologies and so on. I think there needs to be this profound caution. As Patrick Deneen, who's a very interesting contemporary thinker, a post-liberal thinker, suggests, he says that liberalism has failed because it has succeeded. Right? This is a very, very interesting claim. That what we've ended up with is a kind of hyper-individualism, a total market society at the expense of all of these things that actually um, gave us value, whether it be religion, tradition, the family, uh, and so on. And, and when we have ultra-leftists proclaiming they're in favour of the abolition of the family, you really want to say to them, the family has already been destroyed <laughs> by the economy, by, by technology, by the incursion of uh, money into every area of life. And actually what we should be doing is preserving those forms you know, as, as best we can against the invasion um, of these things. Because as Elric Becker said, what we're doing is just developing and creating more and more problems for ourselves to solve. You know, and we're, we're saying we're sort of picking it down the road and saying, well, we can get some new techs and, and you know, surely some new technology will turn up at some point and solve this problem. No. <laughs> you know, this is just kicking everything down the road constantly. And no governments really want to stand up and say, well, actually, let's have a look at the whole thing rather than just work on getting elected in the next, uh, the next election. So that's a few thoughts. Simply, where does it end? You know, like uh, this, this great sort of English commonsensicalism I'm very in favour of. I used to hate this sort of British empiricist common sense thing, but now I love it and I think the British were right. So whenever your mum says something like, you know, oh, come off it and don't be silly, uh, I think this is the attitude we should have. <laughs>
right? We wouldn't use that term in German, right? We would call it the clash of cultures. Because in German, in at, least some, at least we did in the past, we distinguish between the idea there's civilization, which is technology, right? Which is, uh, which is progress in the area of industry, in the area how we do things, how we use energy, right? Kind of the material world and the material forces. And then there's culture, which is the metaphysical, the search for meaning, if you want, right? There's this idea kind of the, the spiritedness, if you want, of an individual and the people. And this goes back to what Nina was saying. And these two things are, of course, intertwined, right? If I kind of treat them now as if they are two separate things, I just do it out of convenience. But of course, in reality, they are tightly, tightly connected. Because the stage of civilization you live in depends on the kind of culture that came beforehand. Right, so this is one of the things, and I hope this is something also we kind of want you to think about after these three days. Right, modern society, industrialized society, is of course in many ways a direct consequence of the way how Christianity looked at the world. Right, if you look at people like Isaac Newton and other, you know, giants of the Enlightenment, you'll figure out that they were very, very interested in questions of theology. And for Newton, the idea was that God reveals Himself or herself or whatever not the correct term here would be in or the divine reveals itself in two ways one is revelation right what you read in the bible but the argument the second time made was it reveals itself via nature right that god created laws right that nature is not just working randomly that you know the sun might go up maybe it doesn't right maybe water flows downwards and then it flows upwards no 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 there are certain rules there is one entity that can change those rules which would be the divine but the divine does so only in very, very, very exceptional cases. I mean, just as a general question, what do we usually call it if such a case happens? What, what are these things called? It's a miracle, right? So even, this is the whole point, right? Hypothetically, nothing is impossible for God, but even God only breaks the rules he made on, on rare occasions. This is why we call it miracles. So what people like Isaac Newton were thinking was, well, if there are certain laws created, we can understand these laws. And the better we understand these laws, the better we can understand God. And this was in many ways the birth of modern science. Now, to be very clear, right, these paths have now diverged significantly. But this is what I meant when I said about civilization and culture. Now, you can nowadays be a scientist and be an atheist. I don't think that's a problem, as Richard Dawkins would tell all of you. But to reach that level, that civilizational level, right, where you can do the kind of research that Richard Dawkins has been doing, you need the cultural underpinning, and in many ways this cultural underpinning was a Christian underpinning. And again, right, the point here is not to be very clear. The point here is not to say that now, ooh, does this mean that Christianity is superior to other belief systems? No, not at all. It has different consequences. And this is kind of the point that I'm trying to get to. Because there's another thing that I do not believe. Maybe I'm wrong there, but that I do not believe. Which is that, and this is something that became particularly interesting and popular with Karl Marx, right, this idea that Sure, we are all individuals can, and, and we live our lives, but ultimately there are structural forces that you might believe you're in command of your own fate or you, you're in command of your own decisions and your life, but actually it's the structure of society, it's the structure of the economy, it's the structure of the family that forces you into a particular way of behavior. And even though you might think it is your choice, it really isn't. I mean, it's not entirely wrong, right? I think this is what we talk about, how we are socialized in a culture, how we are socialized in a society. It's not entirely wrong. There are many things that we believe are objectively true that would have been completely absurd to others who came before us. And I'll give you one example, the idea of progress. If you would have gone back to the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans, and you would have talked to them about the idea of progress, they would have had no idea 
what you're talking about. Right? For them, the idea was continuity, stability, or in the case of the Greeks, very often, right, that life is cyclical, civilized, that everything is cyclical. It's a beginning, it's a high point, it's an end, and then it starts over and over again. The idea that there is something like a purpose to history, there's something that Kant talks about, that Marx talks about, that Hegel talks about, right, that we're developing towards an end point. This is also the argument, of course, of modern, if we want to use the term, of modern progressives that we are moving further along a path. And then at some point towards the end of this path, there's gonna be one great utopia that awaits us. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't, right? This is not something I can tell you. But this is a completely new way of thinking. This is not something you find in many civilizations or in many cultural ideas outside of the West. Once again, I feel obliged to say this, this is not a value judgment, it's just, something how it has historically developed. Right? I know in the previous session, a topic was human rights, a very, very similar topic. Right? The idea that the individual should be the focus of, of what we consider to be moral, right? the protection of individual rights. Again, something that Nina, I think, so eloquently pointed out, that we would also call probably hyper-individualism. And that, again, that might be a good thing, I'm not opposed to it, but it is something that would have been completely alien for example, to somebody living in ancient Rome, right? If you would have said, well, the most important thing is the individual, they would have not understood what you're talking about, right? The same with ancient Greeks, the same uh, with, with, with Hinduism, with Buddhism. For these civilizations, the idea that the individual is kind of the primary focus would have been completely absurd. Now, you might wonder, so where did this idea then come from? And this is where we have the intertwining of civilization and culture, because we live in this Fascinating age where hypothetically, I've never done it, maybe I tried for a year once, but I don't recommend it. Hypothetically, I could lock myself up in my room, work remote, get a cheeseburger and a pizza delivered, delivered every day, and never leave my room. So I could truly survive and live and be in contact with other people, even though I'm not really part of a group, right? I'm not really part of a larger society, a larger collective. Now, this is a luxury I could hypothetically afford because of the civilizational slash technological process and progress that we've made. This was not an option in the past. If you lived you know, 3,000 years ago and you said, you know what guys, I'm gonna go it all on my own, you did, maybe for a week, maybe for three days, and then you were dead. So the option did not exist. Nowadays we have these options. And this is what I mean. So this is the distinction when we talk about so we can have civilizational progress, and then we have cultural progress. But the question is, Civilizational progress is easy to define, as I said, right? It's, I don't know, I got my first music on a record, right? This huge, you know, vinyl, maybe some of you guys still, you know, still know it kind of for collector's uh, reasons. And now I have it all on my phone. So I think there's a clear trajectory how technological progress made things more convenient, easier available, so fantastic things. Now, in the realm of culture, it's of course slightly different, as I said before, right? Because there we deal with questions of meaning. There we deal with questions of what makes life worth living. And many of the things, and I agree very much with Nina said, that happened at the very beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Like, I'm the one with the German accent, but it's actually Nina who sounded like a German philosopher. This very idea that modernization, that technological progress, it will rob us of who we truly are. Right? It will no longer allow us to be, again, a, a term that is so important these days, it will no longer allow us to be authentic, to be our authentic selves, that technology has robbed us of our true identities. And this debate, by the way, has been going on since the early 19th century. So this, it's, it's still an important debate, but it's not really a new one. So when we look at some of the contemporary debates, right, whether it's you know, ethnic identities, religious identities, sexual identities, 
these are just, let's say, different new colors and new shades of a debate that has been going on for a long time. Because once it became clear as a consequence of the technological progress that you could hypothetically, and now in our age you could do it literally, that you could live without tight connections to whatever group you are part of, of course this then throws the question back of you, who are you, who are you really? Because again, if I go back to the Romans and the Greeks, you couldn't ask that question because it, you were part of a family, you were part of a community, and there was no choice because you needed them to survive and they needed you to survive. So your identity was pretty much set. Now in a world where you can be an individual, of course that identity is much, much more fluid. That's awesome if you're super successful, if you happen to have some skills, some talents that nobody else has, right? then individualism is an absolute asset. But of course it can also be very, very stressful because the other message that came out of this technological revolution was, listen, in a world where 99% of the people are planting potatoes in the fields, it doesn't matter if you're a talented musician, uh, you know, a great influencer, or as a very skilled mathematician. You're literally all the same. Society was very equal at that time. But by the point with technological progress, where in agriculture and other areas, a lot of things started to be done by machinery, and people were free to do something else, all of a sudden the question was, okay, if you no longer work in the fields, if you no longer do agriculture, what else can you do? Now this creates an anxiety because, what is your name, Ryan? Yeah. yeah, because as long as Ryan and I were planting our potatoes, our crops, we were completely equal. But what if it turns out that he's actually a math genius and I'm dumb as a rock? In an actual industrialized society, we'll find out very quickly. So he might be happy, but maybe he's unhappy with this too, because maybe we liked each other. Maybe he thought, you know, Ralph and I were basically the same. And then he realizes, oh no, we're not at all. And he's gonna move into you know, a swanky, you know, loft somewhere in downtown London, and well, I don't know where I'm gonna end. But this is kind of, it, it then creates the kind of problem with inequality that we're also discussing about. And this gives us, I think, now the, the key question that I hope we can then also discuss with you is. Civilizationally, as I said, the, the idea of progress is pretty clear-cut, right? We want better medicine, we want you know, more efficient apartments, more efficient transportation, that's also one side. With culture, it's different, because then we have to ask the question, progress, all right, but progress to where? But that's the thing, that's a decision. I give you one example. Imagine, not too much, but imagine for a second, you win 12 million pounds in the lottery. Uh, Ryan and I, we both win 12 million pounds. Now, it depends. I might say, I'm going to be very frugal, right? I'm going to use maybe, I don't know, 10,000 pounds every month because this will then last me towards the end of my life and I'll be fine. Ryan maybe says, to hell with it. I'm going to spend my 12 million pounds in the month of January and I'm going to have the biggest party of my life. For the entire, I know you wouldn't, for the entire month of January, right, we probably would say, God, look at Ryan. He's living the life and, you know, Ralph is just living his average, his average life. But Ryan might know this. The question then is, it's a choice what we then would perceive as progress. Is progress, and this goes back to also what Nina mentioned, that you say you live a life where you indulge in whatever you can, where you do whatever makes you feel good, whatever, makes, whatever satisfies you, it doesn't matter what it is. You, you know, wanna open up your OnlyFans account, no problem. Right? All these things where there are no more restrictions anymore because whatever you wanna do, it all depends how it makes you feel. And that's, this is a form of progress. Or you could argue, which is, as I said, that I'm metaphorically undressing for you, this is what I'm doing now, right? I'm an old school nationalist, 
So for me, it's very, very important to maintain and to sustain the nation. So therefore, I care about birth rates, right? I care about morality, I care about social cohesion. But of course, somebody could justifiably say, you know what, Ralph, that's your idea of progress because these are the goals that you care for. If somebody says, I'm, to go back to Ryan, right, I'm in my early 20s, I just won a million pounds in the lottery and now I want to live my life to the fullest and then go to an early grave with a chin tonic in one hand and a cigarette in the other, the question is, who am I to tell him? And I think this is why we have to get away from the idea of what we have to do, to see that, that progress is a clearly defined set. I think we have to enter the debate, both politically and societally, where do we want to progress to? Right? Do we say we want to be the, the individual that spends the one million in the first month? Or do we say we want it to be something sustainable because we, for example, care about the idea that there is something like Britain in you know, 100 years? But that's a choice, right? And I think this is the question then that we have to ask. Thank you very much. been listening to Nina Power and Ralph Schollhammer on the dangers of progress. It was the fourth in a new series of talks recorded at the Living Freedom Summer School 2023. Don't forget to subscribe to the Ideas Matter podcast on your favorite podcast feed. And if you liked it, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you'd like to find out more about Living Freedom, then do head to our website, www.livingfreedom.org.uk. And finally, if you feel that you can help us financially with a donation, large or small, then please hit the donate button while you're there. Thanks, and we'll be back soon. Thank you.